0: My friend Bob is with us today. Now, it was months ago when I invited him to, hey, Bob, would you come and be a part of our service and uh, come and share? And, and uh, so I, I even told him uh, uh, just a few weeks ago, I said, hey, we're in a First John series. Can I give you this passage? And would you be willing to? And he said, oh, I'm all over that. So um, uh, Bob and I, we grew up together, same youth group. Um, and uh, I love him uh, like a brother. He's, he's my twin In in many ways, no, Um, but we, we, Bob is, uh, after Bible college, we went to Bible college together, and after we were both done, I followed the Lord, came to Indiana, he didn't, went to Illinois, no, just joking, no, he pastored some, uh, some great churches in Illinois, and, and just recently... Um, he became Dr. Bob, and, um, and so he's on the staff of Evangel University in Springfield, Missouri, as well as AGTS. someone got Theological Seminary, and he can tell you more about that. But, you know, um, just even recently, I know Bob was probably going to mention maybe something about this, but he, he had a little health episode. <laughs> and uh, when I say that, um, this guy was dead and is now alive. And sure. if you've never met someone like that, you now have. And um, uh, so, um, so he may share some of that story. I don't want to steal his thunder, but I, I said this a couple weeks ago. I promise I'm almost done. But I said this a couple weeks ago, uh, kind of talking about our staff. <laughs> and, uh, and our desire, when, when you read the book of Acts and you see that one part where it talks about, I think it's Peter and John. These these were unschooled, ordinary men. Um, but, boy, they'd been with Jesus. You, you knew that. And, and here is a very schooled, ordinary man who also has been Jesus, with Jesus, all right? He's it's been true. with Jesus, and so I commend him to you. I want, I want you to open up your hearts as we, as we hear the word of the Lord shared from uh, Pastor Bob Eby. Come on, would you welcome him? Thank to you. Thank you
1: well, it is uh, just a really wonderful honor to be at Pathway. We've actually been to this church once before. We attended, uh, didn't necessarily preach, but we were uh, attending, and it was a long, long time ago. We came to a church service when uh, when Pathway was meeting in a, I don't know, an RV center or a, I don't know, but I remember we met in a, in a gym, I mean in a, in a garage kind of space, uh, and I'll never forget that. And so this is my second time at Pathway, and I was reminded today of, of my friend, uh, your pastor, who you obviously uh, know and love and appreciate, and I do as well. And I count Scott among one of my closest friends in ministry and... and and have for years. It wasn't always that way. Um, we uh, we grew up uh, in many ways in the same youth group, and and when you put a bunch of youth group guys together, uh, you know that that angst of teen years and all of the all of the tensions that go along with that. I mean, Scott and I had challenges, and. Uh, uh, and and I was reminded of them this morning. I, I was reminded why I didn't like him. I, you know, I, why I couldn't stand the guy. And and he showed me again today. There were two reasons I didn't like Scott. And um, one of them was uh, he was uh, he had something I didn't have, which was this gift to be able to sing and minister through song and I just don't have that 24 years of being a lead pastor I would have loved to just say you know this song and then start leading into it <laughs> no I, I turn on like please do you know this song can you lead this song I want to and and usually song leaders go I have no idea what you're doing and so uh, I just remembered why i didn 't like the guy. I mean those kind of gifts to just turn it on and be used of the Lord in that way. The other one was as a, as a teenager I mean he had those boyish good looks that all the girls liked and and he had a long line of uh, female pursuers and and uh, and I did not have that and and so I had two really, really big reasons i don 't like I only have one now. Um, I'll let you figure out which one. (laughs) This is a big day for me. Not just because I'm preaching the word. I will tell you every time I stand in this sacred space and open this holy text is a big moment. It's a big moment for me uh, because two months ago there was a really strong possibility I wouldn't be able to do this. This is the first time I've stood on a platform and taken God's word to proclaim it to a congregation. I won't belabor it. It's not my text. It's not my message today. But it is a message burning in my heart that I someday will, will probably get to share. And I hope maybe hear it pathway. I'll spare some of the details because I, I found her. I saw my mom is in the house. Grew up in northern Indiana. And I'm glad my mom's here. But I'll spare the, the full details of all of it. I wouldn't want my sons to spare, share all of these details. It's hard for me to talk about it, how much more so for a mom to hear it. But on Wednesday, July 28th, came home. It was late in the evening. Her son had just gotten home from youth and our middle son had just moved in back with us. He'd been living in the Chicagoland area where we had lived for so many years, nearly 20 years. And when we moved to Springfield, Missouri, he didn't move with us. And, and um, I've been working on losing weight and I dropped probably about 20, 25 pounds. And, and uh, I decided, okay, I've, I've been walking three, four miles a day and it's time now to, to go back and step it up a notch. And I decided I was gonna run a 10K in October. And it was time to train to do that, and so I uh, I, I found a training program to, to do a 10K. And, and uh, that day on Wednesday, my, my day had been very busy, and I hadn't really had the opportunity to do my appointed run. It was a timed run. It wasn't a distance run, but the time ended up being that I ran about two miles, and it was nine o'clock, I hadn't done my run, and, and uh, I, I thought about not doing it, but then I decided I probably should do it. And so we got home, nine o'clock, I went downstairs, I'd been running outside in the mornings, and, but I went downstairs to the treadmill, which is kind of in this back storage area, behind a closed door, not connected anywhere else in the, in the house, and, and uh, I, ran my, I ran my allotted time, nearly, nearly two miles. I got done. I pushed it pretty hard, uh, for me. Now, let me tell you, if I told you the actual distance and time I ran, you would be like, pushing it hard? Really? (laughs) Don't lie in the pulpit. But, um, I, uh, I pushed it for me. And, uh, 47 years old, I came up the stairs. My youngest son was sitting on the couch watching TV, which he is almost never doing at 9.30, 9.40 at night. And, um, You know, you reward yourself after you run on the treadmill, and I got a popsicle. I got a healthy choice, though, popsicle, because I'm responsible. And I sat down on the couch and started eating the popsicle. And uh, with, with no warning, with not a moment to say a word, with no pain, none of the indications we all have been trained to recognize, all I knew was my vision, is as, as if it was a rectangle, quickly closed in to a center point in the center of my vision and everything instantly went black. The next conscious moment I had was waking up in an ICU bed uh, with a ventilator on tube down my throat. My Hands restrained to the side of the bed and um, nurses saying, you're okay, we're taking care of you. What I did not realize is that what had transpired between 9.40 on Wednesday night and 7.30, 7.45 on Thursday morning is that I had had a, I guess you would say massive, heart attack. And my Really, more than just a heart attack, my heart just went into, from the attack, went into complete cardiac arrest. All I could get out of my mouth in that moment as my vision closed in on me, and I just thought I was passing out because I pushed it too hard on the treadmill. I vividly remember it. I just remember kind of going, whoa. And uh, I was spared the real trauma of that night that my family endured. Our 16-year-old yelled for help. Our 20, now 22, he just turned 22 two days ago. 22-year-old rushed out of his bedroom. My wife was reading in our bedroom and she came out. (coughs) And for all purposes, (coughs) by clinical understanding, I I had already died. And um, that middle son of ours jumped into action, didn't even know that he had ever been trained in CPR. It was a part of a health class in school. We had no idea. And for 10 minutes, at least, he fought for my life. He was an all-state wrestler in high school. Just a beast on the mat. And he took out 21, nearly 22 years of parental frustration on me doing chest compressions. (laughs) The length of time that he did CPR should not have. uh, When they got me to the hospital, the paramedics got there to to the house and hit me with the defibrillator paddles and shocked my heart back into rhythm. And uh, obviously, I don't remember any of this. And they um, got me to the uh, to the emergency room and and they uh, the ER doctor explained to my to my wife that um, the length of time that 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 he did CPR, and my heart was stopped, she needed to be prepared. That um, that I may never be the same. That cognitively, mentally, I may never recover if I did physically recover, and um, that's precisely how I lost my dad. Went into cardiac arrest. They did CPR too long, and he never woke up. And. Uh, What they hadn't counted on is it wasn't nurses and doctors and surgeons who did CPR. That's who did that on my dad in the, uh, he was in the hospital in Rochester, Minnesota. What they did not anticipate that I had a wrestler, that doing compressions, he made sure my heart pumped. Because I'm pretty sure when I woke up, the pain that I was in, not from the heart attack, but from the chest compressions, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure with every compression, my sternum touched my spine, because it hurt. I'm taking more time to tell this, but, but they did an angiogram that Thursday morning. Our hope was that something had just gone wrong. Maybe I would just gone into cardiac arrest. That's what I silently hoped for. Everybody else already knew I'd had a heart attack and and they wanted to know what the condition was. So they did the angiogram, hoped to open up a blockage, maybe with a stint or two. And they got in there. And uh, the best I can tell, I had the arteries of an 80-year-old. The hardest moment of my entire recovery came maybe a week and a half ago when I met for my very first appointment with my cardiologist. And, And they explained to me that one artery was 100% blocked. Another artery was 90% blocked and two arteries were 80% blocked. And uh, they did quadruple bypass two months ago yesterday. And I will just tell you from the moment sitting on my couch on a Wednesday night, to this moment, that moment was terrible. Every moment since has been a glorious, God honoring miracle. Amen. And so, I uh, I got out of the hospital on a Monday, a week after the surgery. I was in faculty meetings at Evangel on Thursday. I haven't missed a class. I taught at North Point. We've got some fine students here uh, from North Point, a couple here. Are there three here today? Yeah, is is there? Okay. Uh, We've got, I was at North Point teaching uh, as a visiting professor, and and, uh, I haven't missed a single class, and this is the first Sunday that I get to open God's Word and preach to God's people. So thank you. For a moment and a memorable occasion for me. When you sing about revival, that word re, you know, that prefix re means to to do something again. And Vive comes from another language and a root means it means life. We can sing about revival, but I will tell you, I am living revival. So, Lord, today we turn our attention to you and to your word. And we are reminded that your word is truth and that your word is powerful and that your word brings life everywhere it goes. And so, Lord, may we hear it well today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I if I uh, if my preaching doesn't live up to the moment, I'm first of all I'm going to blame my my surgery. Secondly, um, uh, I'm going to if it does, uh, I, I'm still going to try to I'm going to try to induce another moment uh, to come back and preach someday again at uh, Pathway. When I tell you that I had the bookend moments of consciousness of my vision going and everything going black, and then the conscious moment of waking up on a ventilator in the ICU, what I didn't tell you were the two moments of profound and complete awareness when I knew I was dying and knew I was actually at death and the Lord showed up and spoke a word to me that's changed everything. I'll save that for the next sermon. I carry carry it pretty pretty close to my heart right now. I'm not playing games with you. I I carry it pretty close to my heart right now, but God is birthing a message out of that. Uh, If I can leave you with this, if you've ever wondered, I I don't say this is exactly the same for everybody, but if you've ever wondered what your loved ones in Christ experienced in a moment when they stepped from life to eternity, he's there. And what we preach and what we sing It's more than just words. I can tell you I've been to that side. I can't believe I've got this story now. But I've been to that side and I bring you word. He meets us. And there is no fear. And there is no doubt. There is only peace. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, Pastor Scott asked if I might be interested in continuing the series. That pathway is working its way through. In First John, and I will tell you that as a pastor, one of my greatest joys was to establish my preaching plan not on just where I felt and what I thought was going on and how I could diagnose a moment, but in the consistent passage upon passage preaching of God's Word because every passage has relevance. Every word speaks to us today. Every word in this sacred book is God's Word, not just to them back then, but to us right now. And so to have uh, the opportunity to say, here's your text, hear what God is saying through it, is one of the great privileges that I had as a pastor, and I just don't get to do much today. This last week, uh, apart from all of the other chaos going on in my life, uh, there was a, one, of those most, uh, one of those most sacred moments uh, on the American calendar. Uh, that just happened last weekend. At least in my world, it happened last weekend. It's not necessarily something that's the same everywhere. But there are things we celebrate, things that are precious to us as Americans, things that we look forward to, that we set our hearts upon. And uh, last week was that week in in my neighborhood. It was that special moment, the annual subdivision garage sale. And uh, I mean, that unique moment when we are able to condescendingly go through all of our neighbor's stuff, <laughs> look down upon their choices and question their taste, and make ourselves feel better. And, uh, that's, and, then, and then bicker with them that a nickel was too much for their knickknack. I would only give them a, a, a penny for that. Uh, really special, special moments. And uh, so, uh, but there was something... Something even more um, significant than just a garage sale. All through our, our neighborhood, there were garage sales. But on the corner of one of the two main streets in our subdivision, this house chose to take it to the next level. This was no garage sale, this was an auction. I'm like, wow, an auction. Which appeals to me again, condescendingly going through my neighbor's stuff, but but more than that, now I get to feed this deep inner competitive nature that's in my in me, and now I get to outbid my neighbors for other neighbors' junk, and that's really, I mean, can you hope for any more? And uh, so I grabbed my youngest son. I'm like, hey, let's go to the auction, because I like auctions. I don't like garages. I like auctions. And so we went to the auction and. And, and I, was, I was humbled when I got to the auction because I realized why this was an auction and not a, and not a garage sale. Um, it seemed pretty clear just walking through that it was an auction because whoever was the first to go between this husband and wife, now the second one had gone as well. And a lifetime of possessions were being auctioned off and when we walked through, Bryant and I walked through all of the stuff and there was jewelry and there were a few tools and and in the house there was furniture and it was, it was very dated stuff in the sense that, dated not in a negative way, but you could tell that the house really hadn't been updated much probably since maybe the late 70s, early 80s. So I was kind of trying to put the age of of the couple, and and at one point I saw a picture of the couple, and I saw a couple nameplates of of whatever business he had owned. Uh, He had some signs that were there in the garage. I never met this neighbor, and and it was interesting. The auctioneer that they had hired was going around, and he he kept saying things like, before the auction started, it's all going to go today. When this is over, there'll be none of it left. We're selling it all today everything's going, all the furniture, all the jewelry. And then I watched as people kind of just decided what they wanted to bid on. And, and there was um, jewelry. And this one guy is, my son and I were wandering around. There was really nothing that we were all that interested in. And this one guy just looked at me. He's like, man, this is all old stuff. And uh, I was just struck that how, how hard it would be. I know for me. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I have is, that's nearly priceless to me, but if put at an auction, it would just be old junk to other people. And how hard it would be to see something that was so valuable to me, so cheaply traded. I watched just a few moments of the auction, and they started with the jewelry. And I can imagine that this woman, she had a large collection of jewelry, and I'm sure it was all meaningful to her. She obviously liked jewelry. And people were, nobody was bidding. I'll give you two bucks for that. And I'm sure that she probably wore that on some special occasions, maybe to a, a wedding or to a, to a funeral. Maybe on a special celebration of an anniversary. And here, here were these people who had no connection, didn't care, just offering, I'll give you a buck for that. It's all got to go today. And I hear the words of the aged apostle in 1 John chapter 2. And across the ages, it seems like he is crying out to a group of people that he loved desperately, for whom he had some sense of pastoral responsibility. And he recognized that they had within their grasp and within their hands something of incredible value, something once they had held as being of Eternal significance. And yet within this pastor's heart, there was something that spoke of a deep underlying concern. Let's see if we can identify them today. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When Pastor Scott first gave me this text, I read it and and I thought he was setting me up because I was reading this text and there seems to be two movements in this text that are so radically different, so unique in their focus and their tone and their context that I thought, how in the world am I supposed to preach these two disparate parts of this text in 1 John? I mean, yeah, give me the passage that don't love the world, I can preach that. But what is this first part, and how does it connect? And, and the deeper I studied, the more I realized these are not two disparate texts. These are one united whole about a truth that I think is just as relevant to us today in the 21st century as it was to John's readers in the 1st century. What's happening in this first segment that that, that that's marked off in John 2, it's set apart from the rest of the text. It's, in many translations, it's even bracketed by the way that it's kind of um, put in the text. It's not in paragraph form. It's, it's kind of, uh, in a lot of texts, highlighted out as a stanza. And John, the aged apostle, I love this guy, he, you know, he's the one that refers to himself. You've got to love this guy. I mean, son of thunder, he's that apostle, right? Uh, James and John, you know, they're the ones that are like, hey, can we sit next to you in the place of authority in your kingdom? I mean, they were the ones calling down fire on the people who didn't believe. That's, that's this John. And John is so humble, though, that he would never mention his own name in his gospel. But he just calls himself the one Jesus loved. I mean, there you go, right? I'm, I'm just the one Jesus loved. And and John has another one of these moments where in the middle of his text, he just, he seems to lose himself in the text. See, we don't don't get it here because this isn't the way we would do this. But the writers and the readers in this time period immediately recognized what John was doing when he did this. For this is an expression of poetry. This is in the form of. Of Hebrew poetry written in Greek when John wrote it but it was a form of Hebrew poetry it, it may have even been a song a part of a song that they sang in their worship services that's the reason it's set apart the way it is that's why it repeats itself the way it does that's the form of poetry that John had been raised as a good Jewish young boy in, in the region of Galilee this was poetry Why in the world, in the middle of his letter to his his flock, does John burst into poetry? It's almost as if when he gets done talking about this new commandment we have from the Lord, that we ought to love one another. That John just is transported back to those days when he heard Jesus' voice. Transported back to the experience of knowing, seeing him resurrected. He goes back and he recognizes the incredible value of what he's received in Christ. And instead of just writing it out in some prose, instead of just trying to describe it in cold technical language to try to give some kind of scientific definition to it, John couldn't put it into prose. He couldn't put it into simple words. He launches into the expression of praise and thanksgiving with a poem that tries to describe the value the wonder, the transcendent significance of what Christ has done for all those in him. And he forms it in this word of poetry. That he, he addresses it by kind of the first one is the, the big general thing. He, he says, little children. You think, oh, well, he's talking to the kids here. Uh, and, and he later on says it again, little children. But you got to understand the context this is the exact same word that Jesus used, recorded for us in the Gospel of John, when he refers to his disciples, my little children. See, this was not a, a word just saying, oh, you're, you're, you're little babies. No, he was saying, this was a word of pastoral and fatherly affection. You're, you're my children. This was addressed to the whole church, to all of you. You have been forgiven. And, he, and then he says... Both ends of the spectrum. The old, the fathers, the elders of the church. He says, you've known him from the beginning. Him who was from the beginning. You know him. You've experienced him. And then he goes, ah, and you young men, you young ones in the church, you too that are in Christ, you too have experienced and have overcome the evil one. You are walking in victory over the evil one. And so John, and then he repeats it. And it's funny, the only thing he changes really in significance is the tense he uses. He says, I'm writing... That's present tense in the first set of stanzas. In the second set, he changes it to the past tense. It's as if John says, I'm so excited. I'm so overwhelmed with the wonder and the majesty and the glory of what I'm writing. I'm, I'm writing this. And then he, he transports himself. and He says, there's going to be a moment you're reading this. and I wrote it while you're reading this. Now, I want you to celebrate it with me. I'm celebrating it while I'm writing it. And after I've written it and I've sent it to you, now what I wrote to you should cause you to celebrate. You should have incredible joy. You should be celebrating at this wonderful truth from oldest to youngest, from all spectrums in the church, whether you are a brand new follower of Christ or whether you followed him with all of your life, there is something wonderful. You have known him. You have experienced him. You have overcome the evil one. You are strong in the Lord. And he just kind of launches into this wonderful song of, of gratitude and wonder at the, the, the value of what they have in Christ. You know, I, I, I know just a little bit of Middlebury's context and history. I settled in the early eighteen hundreds by first by some good old fashioned Anglican Vermonters, Puritans by background. You know, you know how, you know the stiff upper lip of British people, right? Well, you don't get too carried away you got to keep it all under control. And there's only one group that could take that stiff upper lip, uh, stiff upper lip to a higher degree, degree, and that's the next group, the group that came about 10 years later from Somerset County, Pennsylvania, by way of the continent in Europe, uh, the followers of Menno Simons, the Mennonites, the Anabaptists, the Amish, that stolid lot of German descent. We're not gonna show you any emotion. I mean now I, I preach about the value of our salvation. I mean I'm speaking to that community. And and if I move you and if I affect you, I might might get a nod. I may if you I mean if you get real Pentecostal on me, you may even do this. But I'll tell you, John is more like like that tradition, like the Church of God in Christ. I don't know if you know Church of God in Christ. That's kind of a sister fellowship to this congregation's fellowship. They have a little thing they call a a praise break. You ever seen a praise break? Look it up on YouTube. Just type in praise break. There's a channel dedicated to praise breaks. This is when all of a sudden the preacher's preaching and somebody gets a blessing. And all of a sudden the organ starts going. And the, well, well. And all of a sudden, somebody just starts to starts to move a little bit, clap their hands. And, and all of a sudden, somebody starts to shout a little bit, and somebody, then somebody moves out. In the, and the next thing you know, the whole church is just, just dancing and singing. Excited. That's John. He had a praise break in the middle of writing a letter. He just got overwhelmed and said, I'm going to write a song about this one. But this one who who declared this incredible declaration. You've been forgiven. You, you have this experiential knowledge of the one from the, who is from the beginning. You've overcome the evil one. You have known the Father in heaven. You've known the one who is from the beginning. That's Jesus in John's terminology there. And you're strong in the Lord. You know his word. And you have overcome the evil one. In the middle of all of that, John changes his tone. He goes from praise break Worship song, write a poem about it. He goes to the simple, direct command. Do not love the world, nor the things in it. What the change for, John? Why, why, are, we, why are we suddenly taking a different tone here? How have we gone from the ecstasies of a praise-break worship to the, to the cold, hard, fatherly, stern advice? don't love this world. That's a pretty jarring transition. Why? Because he understood that this incredible thing that you hold a value can easily be traded and sold for something that has no value that's passing away, that's transitioning away. See, just like there was a neighbor in my neighborhood that owned some things that were really precious to them and everybody else bought it for pennies, John was equally afraid that that thing of value, of eternal significance, that thing that was greater than anything in the world, that this group of believers, there were some among them that were running the risk of giving away, selling away, Trading away this thing of eternal significance for temporary things that had no lasting value. And he says, don't love the world, which is troubling because this is the same apostle who recorded for us Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he said, for God so loved the world. I mean, it's the same words, loved the world. He says in one place that this is the motivation for the Father sending the Son as the redeeming sacrifice to to make right what sin has made wrong. And now in this passage, he says, don't love the world. It gets a little confusing sometimes. Be plain, John. And I think John is plain. He actually defines it for us. He tells us exactly what is this idea of world here. The world is all of those things that don't find their origin From the Father. That's exactly what he said, right? I mean, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. In other words, it finds its source, its origin, not in the nature, in the character, and the creative act of the Holy God, but they find themselves in the twisting and the distortion and the corruption of that creation through sin. That's the world he's talking about here. The world he's talking about in John chapter 3 is something different. He's talking about the, the collection of humanity that stands in desperate need of redemption. Here he's talking about all of those things that take the good things God has given and it finds its origin in those things that twist the good things that God has given. And John pleads with them, Do not love that illusion. Don't sell your eternal value in the love and grace of God for something so cheap as a twisted view of life that's passing away and one day will be gone. That's the world, John warns us, that cheap substitute. That lust of the eyes, that desire of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life in what you can accumulate, what you can gather. It's not that things together are bad or sinful, but when it becomes the source of our significance and our value, we've changed and we've, we've traded something that could never fade away for something that could never go with us. When we take and with the lusts of the flesh, we take the good things God has made, relationships, intimacy, value, work, uh, creation, the wonders of this earth, we take those good things and we twist it and we try to put it in the place of God. We take the things that were meant to be enjoyed and used for the glory of God and we somehow want to make it to be God. We take the things that were a means for our life and our existence and we try to make it an idol and we bow down and worship at it. And we live our lives to accumulate, to gain, to try to fill these gaping holes with our lives, with relationships and money and jobs and titles and degrees, clothes and cars. Rather than looking and realizing those are the passing things of this world, that only try to take the place of God when we twist it with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. So I, I just I just have come to, to pause and take a moment with you. I tell you, you are the inheritors of something of incredible value. From youngest to oldest to newest to the faith to the most experienced elder in the room. If you are in Christ, you have been forgiven. If you are in Christ, you are strong in the word and have overcome the evil one. You know him who has been from the beginning. You know the Father. These things cannot pass away. They will not be tarnished with time. They will not decay in the passing of eternity. These things are of eternal weight and value. And they are yours. But there is always the nagging temptation. And the reason John changes to command rather than encouragement or song of praise, the reason he changes to command is because it's somewhat in our power to guard. Do not love this world. Somebody may be here today and you have this incredible inheritance, great value, and the enemy is offering to buy it at some auction over your soul for pennies. You are at risk of trading your eternal treasure in Christ for a moment of temporary pleasure, for a moment of temporary gain, for a moment you're about to sell your integrity, sell your righteousness, sell your place in the kingdom of God, sell your family for pennies for something in this world. God raised up a preacher who stopped breathing And brought him to Middlebury, Indiana to tell you, it's not worth it. Don't sell what is eternally yours in Christ for something that, like vapor, is going away. Bow your heads with me. Lord, use these moments and this word. Not my word, but your word to speak truth today and if there is one here today that needs to hear not just the glorious hymn of praise from the apostle but also the stern fatherly warning of lived experience don't sell this precious thing you have for pennies today I pray that you'll open hearts to hear that word of encouragement that word of warning Set it deep in our hearts.
0: Can you just close your eyes just for a moment? And can you begin to ask the Holy Spirit to show you? To say, Holy Spirit, what is it you want me to take from this message today? What is it, Holy Spirit, that you want to say to me from from this message today? I just pray that conviction of the Holy Spirit, I pray clarity right now for every one of us to be able to be clear about what it is we're walking out of here, that we need to readjust, we need to change, we need to, we're letting the influence of the world, we're letting the world's thought processes invade in our family, in our marriage, in our thinking, in our actions, in the way we handle our finances, in the way that we handle our, our future, and think about our future. It's a, it's a worldly perspective. It's not a godly and a God-centered. Jesus at the center responds. God, I pray this week, as we discuss this passage in our life groups, I pray even today, as we sit yet in this sanctuary, responding to your word I pray you you put a finger on specific things right now in our lives that we need to change and we need to change them right now things that need to change in my life and in our lives that we need to change right now the word of the Lord's come forward and we must respond God I pray that something supernatural will begin to happen in a greater way in this church as we align our heart and our thoughts to the word of god and have a biblical perspective in every area of our life jesus name i pray